Right, thank you. Morning. Um, I didn't realise I'd be competing with the football straight away, but I, I did think it would be mentioned at some point. Um, forgive me, first of all, my, my throat, my voice is going to be a little bit all over the shop this morning. I woke up in a bit of a cold yesterday, um, but I've been so encouraged by this morning that, to be honest with you, the thought of that has gone away, um, just because it kind of really feels like this morning that through the worship and through the words that have been given, that there is a reoccurring theme here, which is that God holds us and keeps us through the trials. And really, that's kind of what today is about. So, um, I mean, I could leave it there, but for the sake of today, I will, <laughs> I will actually um, get to the sermon. But nonetheless, that is kind of key, and it's encouraging that God is saying that to us the whole way through this morning. So if you are in a fix this morning, if you are in the middle of something, then um, be encouraged, okay? God has got you, and God will lead you through it. Anyway, let's turn to Ecclesiastes. Um, Ben decided to tease me yesterday. He texted me, no, he didn't. He emailed me and said, oh, you're doing Ecclesiastes 7. Shouldn't you be doing Ecclesiastes 8? And I panicked immediately. (laughs) I thought I'd mention it to everyone. But nonetheless, we are at Ecclesiastes 7. We'll start with verse 1. Okay, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and the bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quick sorry, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Let's just pray quickly. Father, we thank you for your word and we lift it to you and we ask that you would just bless us and speak to us through your word, Father. And in doing so, Father, we just pray you would continue to have your hand upon us and hold us in these times. In your name, amen. Now, depending on what um, version of the Bible you've got there, you might find that it has a subtitle, Wisdom, or um, something along those lines. I quite like the New King James Version, which says, The Value of Practical Wisdom, as a little subtitle there, which I think is quite key. And when I was kind of reading through this, it was kind of a timely reminder for me that I think sometimes we, we think wrongly that to understand the Bible, you need kind of a, a PhD in theology and some sort of postgraduate qualification in New Testament Greek. And of course, those things are good. It's good to have scholarly study. Um, we need it, particularly in the church today. We've come we've kind of become a little bit biblically illiterate, not us as a church, but I mean more widely as a church. And we need people that can explain and expound God's word and explain it to his people. But actually, the most practical and the best way um, for God's word to have an impact on our lives is really simply to read it regularly and to, to read it in the simple way that it is. It's there. That's what's going to have an impact upon our lives. Okay, so I just want to encourage you with that, that actually it's the daily, the regular reading of God's word that will have an impact upon us. Even though those scholarly things are good, it's that daily um, coming to God's word that will change us. 
These verses, as I said, are really to do with um, trial, or at least wisdom in times of trial. Um, But we're going to start in verse 1, and it says, A good name is better than fine perfume. Now, there's a play on words here that we can't see because it's in English, but in Hebrew, um, the word for name here is sem, and the word for oil or perfume is semen as well. So it's kind of a play on word that starts with. But I think this opening thing is quite interesting. Now, I like names. You've heard me say that before. Okay? And names are always important. If you're a parent, you will know that you don't quite agonize over what names to give your children, but you spend some time thinking about it. And there's a lot of things that you consider when you're choosing a name, that you don't necessarily kind of realize that you're considering at the time. You think about, for example, the sound of the name. Does it sound feminine? Does it sound masculine? Is it kind of a nice um, sound that goes with the surname? You think about its meaning. You think about if it sits within your cultural um, hemisphere, if you like. So, for example, if I was to call my, um, my son Miguel, That might be a lovely name, but I'm not Hispanic and none of my family are, and therefore that wouldn't quite kind of sit properly within that, and so that might seem odd. Um, We think about uh, if it's a name of its time as well. So, for example, there are certain names that become fashionable at different times. We consider all those different things when we choose the name that we use for our children. But the importance of names, biblically, is far more than simply its meaning or its sound. Um, We know, of course, that in the Bible... There are big instances where God changes the name of someone. Probably the best example is, um, is Saul being um, changed to Paul. But we've also got examples of Abraham being changed to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, Simon to Peter. And in those name changes, God is doing something. He is changing a part of that person's identity. Because your name forms part of your identity, doesn't it? It kind of forms a part of that person. And so when God changes somebody's name, he changes it to change part of their identity. We're going to come back to that a little bit later on, but I just want to put it out there. But also, what we call each other matters quite a lot. Um, I said there that as parents, we kind of, we agonize, we think about the names we give to our children. And I kind of realized when I was doing this that actually I don't spend a lot of time calling my children the names that I gave them if that makes any sense, okay, or that we gave them, rather. I will call um, Emily, Emmy, I'll call Bethany, Beppy, I'll call Joel, Jolie Rowley, for example, okay. So even though I spent a long time thinking about those names and the meanings and everything else that goes with them, I don't use those names, I use a nickname. Well, why do I use a nickname? Because there's something about using a shortened name or a different name that says something about familiarity or says something about the love or the relationship between those two people. If you know people, well, I like nicknames anyway. I like to give people nicknames at work. That happens quite a lot. Um, certainly within my family, it happens quite a lot. So um, nicknames are a good thing, but it says something about um, your relationship to the other person. I'm, I'm a teacher, as you know, and one of the things that um, has happened over time, and it, it happens every year, I'm not quite sure how, but every year I have a GCC class, so I have them from year 10 to the end of year 11, and in year 10, it's fairly all right. They call me Mr. Bradbury or they call me Sir. By the time we get to year 11, it's a different question, okay? Because inevitably, they all call me Bradders. They'll call me Bradders in class. They'll call me Bradders as we walk down the corridor. And initially, when I first came as a teacher, I thought, oh, this isn't on. This isn't, this isn't very respectful, is it? They're walking down the hall. They call me Bradders. They can't be doing that. But actually, over time, the thing I've learned is that the respect they're giving me by calling me Bradders is actually more than the respect they give me by calling me sir. The year sevens, 
They're terrified. <laughs> All right? They will call me sir, they will call me Mr. Bradbury, but they don't do that out of um, a relationship with me, but they do that out of fear, in a sense, because they know they have to do it. The year 11s, they kind of know me. And because they're calling me brothers, it says something about the relationship that I have with them. I know then, therefore, that I can, I can talk to them, I can sit down with them and all the rest of it, because they know me. They've kind of formed that relationship with me. So what we call each other, not just the names, but the names that derive from those names, actually have a big impact. And therefore, when it comes to this first verse... Oh, sorry. That's, would you mind putting up the first bit? Thank you. Sorry. That's my fault. Um, a good name... I was starting to think about that quite a bit. And the thing that kind of occurred to me is, well, who has a good name? We could question that in different ways, couldn't we? You know, is your name better than my name? Um, we could talk about reputation. Sometimes when people say, um, you know, this person's really good at this, that means they have a good reputation in it, and therefore they have a good name in that particular sphere. Um, however, everyone falls short of the glory of God. Everyone gets something wrong. So can we really say that anybody has a good name in that sense? Well, for me, when I started to think about this, I realized that there is only one good name, and that's the name of Jesus, the greatest name in the history of the universe and ever will be. Okay? In Isaiah 9, famous verses, you'll know them, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government be in his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now that's a name. That's the greatest name ever. And those of us that know him and love him, we of course will be saddened when we hear his name misused, but delighted and uplifted when we hear his name mentioned. Who has a good name? Only one person has a good name, and that's Jesus. Now, this all, again reminded me of kind of what I was talking about last time I preached, which was marriage. And one of the things I didn't mention was this idea that when you get married, traditionally in this country, it's different in other cultures, but traditionally in this country, uh, a wife will take her husband's surname. Now, um, that... Um, sadly, I think, is as a tradition attacked in some quarters today. I actually think it's a really nice thing. I understand the reasons why it can be attacked, but personally I think it's a, a show of love and acceptance and, and unity that when a couple get married, that name kind of forms part of who they are. Okay? So that again, coming back to kind of God changing people's name, it changes your identity. All of a sudden you're not just Ben Clark and Claire Clark, all of a sudden you're Ben and Claire Clark, or rather... Ben and, Claire, ben and Claire Clark, it kind of forms part of your identity. If you come into my house, we've got a little coat rack, and it says Bradbury's established 2004, okay, just because that name hems us together. Now, when a couple take that same name, their identity is changed, and they form a new identity. Now, I'm gonna, you're going to have to run with me on this for a minute, okay? It will make sense, not initially. Do you mind just putting up the next slide, Mark? Thank you. Now, I'll come to this in a moment. Now, Ecclesiastes 9.4. If you've got your Bibles, just flick over to Ecclesiastes 9. If you've got it on your um, tabs, feel free to um, scroll over to it. Um, on your phone, sorry, not your tabs. Um, I've just put this into a very quick bit of context, okay? I can't explain it all this morning. If you've got time in the week, I would encourage you to look at Ecclesi um, not Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel 9 and look at Revelation 7. It's a really interesting little Bible story, um, Bible study. Take your time for it. Very quickly in terms of... Um, uh, context, this is written nearly 600 years before Christ, okay, and um, this is to do with, not this bit, I'll come to this in a minute, this is to do with um, the temple and Jerusalem becoming corrupted, 
Okay, and um, this is what God says to Ezekiel in chapter 9, verse 4. He says, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even, the, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations which are being committed in their midst. So lots of bad things were happening in Jerusalem, and people were going to um, end as a result of that. And God said, go through and find those people who love me, basically, and put a mark on them. Okay, you with me so far? Now, I could spend hours on this. This is my favorite historical source, okay? Literally, I could bore you to tears until the, the afternoon. I love this. But nonetheless, for the sake of today, I'm only going to point out one thing for you. If you look at the title there, it says, The World Turned Upside Down. This is from the English Civil War. You don't need to worry about that. But what I wanted to show you is that um, there is something weird with the letters here. Okay, there's something weird with the letters. And if you look, the S looks like an F. And that's because at this point in British, in English history, um, when you wrote a lowercase s, it looked like an F. Okay, the shape of letters changes over time. Has done in English, has done in lots of languages. Okay, now going back to Ezekiel, you'll notice here that it says a um, seal, a mark, was put on the foreheads of the men um, who God wanted to save. Okay, Mark, would you mind just putting on the next one for me? Um, what it shows, or hopefully will show in a moment, is that um, historical and archaeological records tell us something very, very simple, and that is this. It is that um, the seal, the mark that was put on the men, was a Hebrew letter. Fantastic. Okay, here it is. This is the modern Hebrew letter, okay, that was put on it. It's called Tov. Yeah? Now, that has also changed over time. In the same way the English language changes, so does the Hebrew language. A few hundred years before that, it looked a little bit like this. But at the time in which we're talking, the seal, 600 years before Christ, the seal, the mark that was put on the foreheads of the men to make sure they were saved is this. Okay? God went through and he sealed his people and he sealed them with a mark. To them, it was a letter. To us, we know what that is. As I said, go and do a Bible study on, on that and Revelation 7. You'll find something interesting in there. Um, but the reason I'm telling you that is because God seals his people. Now, he does that in a number of ways. This is, this is one example. I like that example. That's why I want to show it. Um, but there are other clear examples. That the best example, and I'm not going to get into it this morning because it's a whole other sermon in and of itself, but that is that he seals us with his Holy Spirit. When we come to know him as our Lord and Saviour, we are filled by the Holy Spirit, and that is a seal, if you like, of God upon us. But in Revelation 3, he writes this, the one who is victorious, the one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven. And I will also write on them my new name. God seals his people with his name. Okay, He seals his people with his name. He wants to be associated with us. My children have my name because I want to be associated with them. That's kind of how it works. And God seals his people with his name. Even today, we are known as Christians. So again, we have been sealed, if not by his name, by his title in all of that. So who has a good name? Well, Jesus has a good name. And he uses that name to seal his people. Okay, now hold on to that for a moment. The rest of verse 1 is also interesting. Okay, it says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily sit very comfortable, or comfortably rather, in today's culture, does it? The day of death is better than the day of birth. Matthew Henry, the um, guy who wrote the commentary, writes this. He says, the day of birth clogged our souls with the burden of the flesh, but the day of our death will set them at liberty. I'll say that again. The day of birth clogged our souls with the burden of the flesh, but the day of death will set them at liberty. And how right he is. Now, as I said, that idea doesn't sit very comfortably in our um, society today because we are kind of, in some ways, kind of shut off from death to an extent, aren't we? It's not as prevalent, if you like, as it used to be in terms of being um, clear or uh, a part of our daily lives as it used to be. But nonetheless, at the same time, I'm not suggesting that the day of birth isn't something that should be celebrated. Of course it is. It's a wonderful moment. When you hold a newborn child in your arms for the first time, it's an extraordinary and wonderful moment and something that should be celebrated. But the point here is that we should be using God's logic, his worldview, to understand this. Yes, that day of birth is wonderful, but the day of death, for those of us that know him, is even more wonderful because although there is a temporary separation from those we love, ultimately we were going to God for eternity in paradise. And that's something that should be celebrated and thought of as wonderful. Okay, let's keep going. Now down on verse 10, it says something which immediately jumped out at me. It says, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Now I've got a problem with that verse. And the verse is this, I spend my entire professional life trying to tell people that the old days are better or at least more interesting than the current day. So I have a slight um, kind of practical problem in trying to get to that point. But of course, um, it, is, it can be a bit of a problem for me. Those who know me well, you know that I'm not very well suited to the modern world. Technology causes all sorts of issues for me. Um, I like, in my own head sometimes, to romanticize the fact that I would have been a much um, more successful person somehow had I been there in the 16th or 17th centuries. Okay, I like to think to myself, yes, I would have made you know, a good Regency person or a good, um, I don't know, I would have been a good Cavalier, for example. Um, however, that, of course, is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense, because when I try to romanticize the idea in my head that somehow the old days are better than these days, I forget the fact that literacy rates were terrible, poverty rates were terrible, mortality rates were terrible. The old days were not better than these days, even if I like to somehow tell that in my head. I know the truth of God's word, the old days are not better than these days. But these verses, as I said, are relating to trial. It's not actually talking about kind of years gone past, it's trying to get you to think about where you are in the midst of things. The point here is not romanticizing the past, instead it's trials. In the midst of a trial, it's easy to think, why has God led me here? Why can't I go back to how it used to be? Okay, the old days. The old days are better than these, is the kind of idea that we have. It used to be okay when I wasn't going through this stuff. I wish I could go back there again. God uses times of trial as a time of refining fire. He uses it to refine his people. Yes, of course, it's easy in the midst of it to want to go back, but the point is that God wants to move us on. That is the point of all of this. This is the point that God doesn't want us to keep us standing where we are. He wants to move us on, not keep looking back, saying, well, that was okay back then, I wish I could go back there, but instead to keep pushing us forward. At the same time, if you skip down to verse 14, right at the end of it there, um, it says, no one can discover anything about their future. Similarly, God isn't interested in us kind of constantly kind of looking as to kind of what's going to happen. He doesn't want us to keep looking back to what has happened. He wants us kind of there in a moment actually looking at him, focused upon him. 
That's the kind of practical wisdom that he's using to explain to people how to come through these trials. In verse 11, it says, wisdom is like an inheritance. Um, sorry, wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Um, sometimes, as Christians, we have a bit of an issue with money. Now, money can be a really bad thing. It's not necessarily a really bad thing. Sometimes, we misquote the Bible and we say money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. In other words, if you put your dependence in it, if you rely upon it, if you have that as your focus, then yes, it's a bad thing. Money in itself isn't bad. And what God starts to describe here in these two verses is actually using, if God gives you money, asking for wisdom to know how to use it. But again, there can be a further problem with that in the sense of trials. If you have a lot of money, or if you have access to money during the time of a trial, the easy thing to do sometimes is to chuck money at the problem. Because sometimes that's a default action, isn't it? I've got a problem here, I'm gonna chuck some money at it and try and sort it out that way. Actually, if you're in the midst of a trial, it's not the money that's gonna sort that out, it's you putting your faith in Jesus, it's you putting your trust in the Lord and seeking him for the answer. That's what will lead you through that trial. So again, money isn't necessarily a bad thing, it can be a bad thing. It's not necessarily one. It's where we place it, if you like, in our lives. It's where we decide whether we're going to rely upon that or rely upon God. And then getting down to verse 13. So consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. And when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. One of the things that I was thinking about when I was preparing for this morning is that God is active. He's not passive. I was trying to put together some RE lessons this week and they had different definitions of things like deism. And deism is the idea that kind of God created everything and then kind of went off somewhere and isn't involved. How wonderful that isn't true. God is active in our lives. He's active in the world. He's interested in what's happening in your life and wants to help you in whatever it is that you're doing. Now, there are times of blessing in our lives, as we know, and there are times of trials. And how often have you been in the middle of a trial and ever thought, do you know what, I think this is going to be okay. I'll just get through it. If you do think like that, then I think you're unusual. Because if I'm in a time of trial my immediate reaction is not that. My immediate reaction is, oh my goodness, how are we going to get out of this? What are we going to do? Of course, it is when you're in that situation that you need to seek God to know how to lead you on. Now, I have shared this before, but it always makes me chuckle, so I'm going to share it again, okay? Um, a few weeks before Caroline got married, um, we rented a flat over in Salbridgeworth. And we went there, literally, I think it was a week before we got married, and we started to move some stuff in so that when we got married, we can then kind of come back from the honeymoon and move straight in. And we went in that week before, we went to turn one of the taps on. And we turned the tap on, oh, there's no water coming out of it. Went to the bathroom and turned the tap on, oh, there's no, there's no water coming out of it. Called the landlord, so I just got the keys, just moved in, and the water's uh, stopped for some reason. He said, okay, don't worry. You're getting married, you go and get married, go on honeymoon, we'll see you in a couple of weeks, we'll sort it out in the meantime. Fantastic. Came back. Came back in the early hours of the morning. First thing we did, turn the tap on, no water. 
called them up the next day. I'm sorry, there's still no water coming through to the flat. It, what, what's happening? Okay, don't worry, we'll send somebody around. Send somebody around. And I don't know what the problem was. They tried to explain it, but for the life of me, I don't know what it was. Our flat did not have water. Every other flat in that complex had water for some reason, but our flat did not. Now, what I should have said at the start is that um, I'd only been graduated, for, I, I think it was less than a year. Um, Caroline literally only just graduated. I, was, I had a job as a waiter in a restaurant. I wasn't earning much at all. And I couldn't afford the rent. Okay? I could barely afford the bills, but I certainly couldn't afford the rent. But we took this flat anyway because we were getting married and we needed somewhere to live. So the guy at the rental place, the lettings agent, said to us, well, I'll tell you what, um, if you want, we can go and get you another flat. And we said, well, we can't do that. We've chosen this one. This is one we want. We just want you to sort the water out. And he said, okay, what we'll do is we'll bring around a water fountain and you can use that for the water for the week and we'll sort it out in the meantime. You won't have to pay rent that week. Fantastic, I thought. That'll work. We can't afford the rent anyway, so that works quite well. We can cope with a week. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone for a long time without water. Believe me, you cannot cope without water. Okay? It's the cooking, it's the cleaning, it's everything else. He brought around a water fountain and he delivered two extra water butts every single day. He then delivered a hose. <laughs> and we had a hose going from the outside tap of a large block of flats all the way through the flats to fill up the water tank so we could heat up the water. Now, at the first glance, this seemed like a good idea. This will be fine. We can do this for a week. Okay? It's not easy. I don't know if you've ever taken a hose for a whole block of flats and tried to put it into a top floor flat and fill it up. Believe me, it's not easy. It's certainly not easy when the hose gets out of hand and starts spraying all around the flat when you try and turn it off. That's an interesting situation. For a week, that's fine. A week goes by, still no water. Two weeks go by, still no water. A month, two months, three months go by every single day, taking the hose all the way up to the water emergency heater, having the bits of water delivered so we had something to, to cook and to drink from every single day. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not the worst trial in the world, but if you're in that situation, good grief is tough going, okay? <laughs> Many years ago now. Well, actually, the point is this. I got a, I've managed to get a job, good thing, Okay, first job after university, and I started that job on November. The water was turned on the first day of November, if memory serves me right. The rent was due the last day of November after I got paid for the first time. Yes, it was a pain when the water wasn't there. It was a nightmare. But what I didn't realise, when the hose is flying around the flat and we're getting annoyed and we're getting soaked and we haven't got enough water, what I didn't realise is that God was using that moment, yeah, you don't have to pay rent until the water's there. And when the water is there, he gave me the money to pay the rent. Okay? Now, I didn't see that in the moment. You never do when you're in it. That's why it's important that when you are in those situations, that you seek God and ask for his direction and his patience in those things. Believe me, after a week of that, we needed some patience. Okay? <laughs> to know that God has actually got that situation in hand, to know that God is going to deliver you from that situation is a wonderful thing. But that is the practical wisdom of his word here. It's a really simple thing. There's going to be good times. 
there's going to be bad times. In the good times, praise God. In the bad times, praise God. It's that simple. Now I'm going to ask James up just so I want to um, sing one song together. One of the songs that we had at our wedding was Blessed Be Your Name. And we had that song because um, the words are quite wonderful, aren't they? You know, you give and you take away. There's good times. There's bad times. But either way, blessed be your name. Now, I've known that in my life. I'm sure that you will know that in your own lives as well. But I'm going to ask this morning as we sing this, don't just kind of sing it as a worship song, although it should be. We should praise God because he does give and he does take away. But blessed be his name anyway. But I'd also ask you, especially if you're going through it this morning, kind of write this as a prayer in your hearts. In the book of Job, chapter 1, it says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, and may the name of the Lord be praised. Let's write those words in our heart, and let's keep it there, that in good times or bad, God should always be praised. Amen.